Hi, I'm Sean Asmar, the founder and chief executive officer of Triple Flag Precious Metals. Our business, uh, we started 86 years ago, and you can think of the founding idea and what we represent as sort of like a Franco Nevada, high quality, high margin, long life, gold focused streaming and royalty business without the well and gas. And at a size where we can compete for the best that's out there, but ultimately where we can generate significant growth uh, into the future. So that's how we position ourselves. Sure, good to see you. Welcome on the show. I'm, trying to, I, I'm keen you. to get you on for a while, actually, because I, I quite like the story. Um, but I, I, I want to understand it better, if I may. So we're going to um, sort of start with, get a few basics. Like, let's start with you. What, what's, your, uh, what's your background and, and story? I started more years than I care to mention now, but in, uh, in, in mining and metallurgy as a metallurgist, right? And after uh, an MBA in the US, um, <clears throat> ended up in London with uh, Billiton, uh, worked on a bunch of deals, including the creation of BHP Billiton. And uh, when Mick Davis left to start Extrata, I joined him co-heading M&A, and he's had this beautiful experience with Extrata and different roles in different places around the world. That's actually what brought me to Canada as CFO of the nickel business when we bought Falcon Bridge. And then uh, just prior to starting this business, nearly six years ago, um, you know, I took on the Barrick CFO role at a time when that business was hemorrhaging money and had about 13 billion of debt. And I think our restructuring capabilities and extrata that I'd accumulated really helped that business. So, um, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. So, so you've got the um, experience in the in the space more broadly. What about the royalties experience prior to starting this up? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's part of who we are in the business we're in now. Is um, it's one thing understanding it at a conceptual level what this business model is and it's a beautiful business model but when you've worked in diversifieds and you know what your cost of capital is and you're interested in copper lead zinc and base base and bulks and you've got this gold and silver stuff that investors don't give you you know quite the same sort of value as it is in a vehicle like this that arbitrage is pretty clear and you know the best gold mines i think really are polymetallics where like in our north parks um uh, gold and silver stream, it's a copper mine. And it's like multi-decade long, and uh, it just has these sort of beautiful long life characteristics. So I think with that diversified experience in places like Extrata, Bulletin, and then you know working on a streaming deal um, in, in Barrack as CFO when we were restructuring, you know, we did a 610 million deal on Pablo Vieo, uh, quickly realized you know, there's a skill set involved here and it's actually quite limited. The sector is competitive, but in the top section, there's not a lot of guys who have firepower and the capability to just do both technical and the commercial structuring of these deals. So that that background and then getting into business with Elliot with the sort of long-term horizon and their deep pool of capital really allowed us to compete out the gate and to build this business. And, and, and you built it, well, 2.4 billion bucks, uh, says, uh, of market cap. But um, what, what I want to get into is the, is, is the weeds around you know, revenues sure. and profitability and buying well versus buying whatever's there, right? So just, just let's stick with the technical component, if we may. So I get the rounded experience, but in terms of your team, the technical team who do yeah. the assessing of, of deals, what was that look like? What's the construct of that? Is it internal, external? No, it's, it's, it's a hybrid. And it's really informed, I guess, we're all products of our experience and our roots, right? So I've worked in very large organizations and some that were small and became very large. And the model I found personally to be the most effective is uh, was how we ran M&A in Extrata. And so even when Extrata went from, I think when we started in the basement of JP Morgan's uh, offices on embankments in London, there were like 
seven of us. It was like a half a billion dollar um, company at that point in time, and it grew to sort of 60 billion over a decade. You know, we, we had a very small, nimble team that would then source the best skills that we needed. So we could cover off the bulk of what we needed internally, and then we'd get the best capabilities. And that's how we set up. We, there's 12 of us. Everyone's been handpicked. It's been a great time to build a team like this. So we cover off the bulk of what we need technically and commercially internally. And then we use our networks um, acquired over a career just to supplement that. I'm intrigued, intrigued because I've heard that a couple of times from a couple of the bigger um, players who um, haven't, who realized it a bit late, right? So uh, in terms of the internal team, what were the skill sets you think, well, I need this component internally because that's highly sensitive towards, you know, in terms of our strategy or our approach, gives us competitive advantage. And what's the stuff that you can buy in as, you know, it, Brian sounds awful, but it is, and I could sometimes, um, you know, call it, that's the admin component. Is So what, what's important internally and what can be outsourced? This will sound a bit soft and fluffy, but, you know, the thing that matters as much to me as those skill sets is, is really the, is, is the fit. Uh, you need that sort of cultural, sort of entrepreneurial aspect, I think, within team members, people who are willing to take risks in their careers in order to potentially transform their lives from a, a wealth creation point of view. And that's not a trivial journey. And there's a lot of people who like the idea of it, but actually taking that on, because bear in mind, we weren't like most in the space who started off maybe with the spin out of existing assets. We started with a blank piece of paper and it was me initially. I you know, picked this team and we built this team over the last number of years. So for guys to take risks in their careers, is not a small thing, but you know, directly to your point, yeah, there's some things that you just can't get away from. You, you obviously need, a, um, you know, certainly for me to operate autonomously as a private company, uh, having an excellent commercial lawyer, which I've got as both my CFO. You know, Sheldon's amazing. He's, uh, he's an accountant by background, was a law partner with a tax specialization, had worked on uh, the Cobra de Panama transaction opposite Frank and Nevada. So deep firsthand experience uh, in, in structuring these things. Um, so he's been a right hand. You know, technically, um, James, who's uh, heads up evaluations and uh, investor relations for me, has so much experience in working around the world with SRK, but as a resource geologist. And we've seen impressive CVs come in, but I don't need people with grand titles who are going to delegate a lot. I need guys who can roll their sleeves up and fundamentally get a bunch of work done and work in a very flat structure. And that's really what we've got. You'll see people wearing multiple hats. In the beginning, when you start this, you know, you're, you're building your website and you're trying to open bank accounts while you're trying to get deals done. And then fast forward five years, you know, we've got DPSG capability in there, definitely the technical skill sets. Eban, who's our controller, used to do this sort of structuring within Barrick and help set up, you know, the, uh, that PV transaction I mentioned uh, previously. So we've actually got a, a bench that's over and above. And then when we go to site or when we do detailed diligence, because We've done 17 deals over five years. We've had a fairly steady cadence. We've looked at well over 500 deals for, you know, those handful of opportunities. And we've really been very discerning because the quality of what we're trying to build is sort of paramount in order to create that value. So we've been very, very careful on the construction of the portfolio. I'm interested in the, in the flat structure, right? And a flat structure in terms of everyone rolls their sleeves up, but is it flat, flat structure in terms of remuneration to you? Because, you know, in, in private equity, I, uh, I relate to what what you're saying and the, and the way it works, but you remunerate people differently from the public sector. You know, public sector has a set of rules and regular expectations, quite frankly. So, how do how do you how do you maintain that 
tight ship, as it were, because people will start looking in and going, well, you know, they're spending money on X, Y, and Z. And it gets difficult let, right? let, to defend. Let, let me give you a sense. So out the gate, now, firstly, you know, in Extrada, we go into businesses all the time and see these quite bloated corporate structures. And the first order of business was really to right-size that, focus on competence. Same at Barrick, right? We took G&A down by 70 million in the first year, 100 million uh, on a go-forward basis. And so as always, I would rather set that cost structure right from the beginning than have it bloated and then have to put it back in the box. And so my first two weeks of starting this business as a lone wolf, I flew to London for just over $1,000, uh, $1, stayed on someone's couch. We really focused on, on keeping our burn rate super low. And when we set up the team, it was really that focus that the opportunity here was really in, in, in unlocking value through the cost to carry and, and equity participation. Every member of this team owns equity. We own over 5% of this business, which is quite unique, I think, amongst our peer set. It's by far our largest source of, of personal wealth, and that truly aligns you. So at, in the beginning, like my arrangement with Elliot leaving a very high-paid job at Barrick to start this, was very much having a decent base, but really the, the prize was unlocking value in the equity. And when I brought people on, the focus there was making sure it was a, a competitive base, their decent bonus for performance, but equity ownership was the carrot. It's, it's, it's interesting. When, when people talk about entrepreneurs and business, I'm, I'm, I'm equally scared and excited. It suggests yeah. a certain mindset, right? And I agree with you. When in early days, you kind of you need that entrepreneurial fearlessness. But later on, well, you're, you're six years into this um, now, right? L later on, it can become problematic. Decision making, uh, which is a little bit fearless, can cause problems if if not if balances and checks aren't in place. So, how have you seen that evolve? Or have you, have you wanted to change that uh, culture? Yeah, so I think it's always a healthy tension. You've actually touched on a point I think a lot of people don't appreciate. It's a thing um, that we grapple with in Extrada, for example, after seeing this sort of meteoric rise. I remember coming to Canada in 2006. And at that point, it was, okay, so how do we stay in touch with the things that made us successful, the DNA, but at the same time, deal with that added layer of the necessary regulatory and other checks and balances that being part of a much larger organization requires. And so I wouldn't say we're obviously at that full stage yet, but as we transition into a public company guys, you know, there's just more time required on certain things, which there's less line of sight to immediate value creation that it's necessary. And so, you know, for us, I think um, it's a tension that we have at our board. It's a tension that we have in our team. I think it's informed by the equity ownership and also this understanding we've had since the beginning that the best way to create a small fortune is to start with a big one if you're, if you're not thoughtful. Um, there's a reason that that ratio, we've got a decent market share, but we haven't run out and shot at everything that moves and we've stayed very true to the model. You know, we haven't gone out and bought a bunch of stuff that's non-precious or violated the model. We've really tried to stay focused on that and you can see it in our our performance over the last five years, that growth and that sort of successive growth in volumes and those new records. And then the 10-year guidance, five and 10-year guidance we've put out. We've got one of the longest live portfolios um, that's fully funded essentially. And I think you see that there. So, you know, we, we really look at it as owners. Uh, we're, we're not reckless. Okay, and I'll come on to that. I do want this scenario I do want to go into because I just want to stick with this entrepreneurial component again because it, it, it's one of those things where as the companies get bigger, as the deals get bigger, um, it 
in a way becomes more corporate. It has to, by the dent of who you're having to deal with to do get these bigger deals over the line. The, the excitement, the frisson um, goes goes a little bit and people have to change and adapt internally. Your team has had to, and so will you. Well, I think given your background, maybe less so, but it, so so will you have to grow up as, as it were. Has, has that meant that you've sort of seen a change in personnel or have people I, adapted? Actually, okay? no. No, I don't think so. So, and, and this is how I'll best illustrate it for you. Even though in the beginning, you know, there was a grand total of just a few people and, and ambition and a lot of skepticism with others saying, you're never going to compete with, you know, the listed incumbents in this space. Our view was that we had the opportunity to take this form of funding and actually expand its applicability to the mining space and that it was less competitive there. And we could actually enhance the acceptance of this form of funding in the mining space. Because if you look at the last decade, it's just under 20 billion that's been deployed with streaming and royalty businesses. That's still a single digit market share. So there's opportunity, I believe, as people appreciate, particularly the arbitrage with base metal businesses. But our first deal was um, within our first year for 250 million. We've done our, um, our best deal and our biggest was actually North Parks in 2020, which is 550 million. And that's still the largest precious streaming deal since our founding. So. We know we can compete successfully with the big guys. It is with the same team, essentially, and the same approach. Um, and this model is very scalable, and that's part of the appeal. So I, I think the mojo is still alive and well within the team. Okay. And with the ghost team, I mean, you just, I'm trying to, what I, what I want to get to is the trying to understand the competitive right. advantage, because a lot of you guys say the same things, right? And it's difficult to, you know, cut through yeah. the white noise, right? Yeah. Um, so when it, when it comes to, you know, royalty and streaming companies, we've interviewed quite a few. You are a streaming and royalty company, emphasis on streaming, right? So um, you, yeah. you've all got your own little um, band and, and, and look look at how you come at the market. And as you've just said, it's a relatively nascent industry. Like the last 20 years, it's, it, was, it was the new kid on the block, right? It was the new way of getting funded. But juniors, you know, look at you guys a, a different way. You guys are obviously yeah. looking at much bigger deals, 250, 550. You just mentioned some of the types of deals that you probably need to uh, do to be able to get you know, move the needle. Um, so yeah. do you think that up where you are, you probably don't really need to evolve anytime soon in terms of royalty and streaming as the structure by which you um, invest or, you know, um, give, give, give money to these companies? Or do you think new products will inevitably come along or new ways of framing funding will come along? Yeah, look, it's, 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 a, it's an important question that I think evolves. Look, we, we uh, invest through the cycle. Um, I think when you're in the CFO chair of a company like Barrick and you're all weighing up a stream against equity issuance, against, you know, trying to term out debt and play with other structured financing alternatives, you understand quite intimately what those alternatives look like. So I think that's part of what we bring. And I think when you've also worked in, you know, a vertically integrated nickel business or zinc and others, you also understand within those businesses, how important that full value chain, that vertical integration is to the cost structure, the likelihood of those businesses to keep investing, particularly upstream to continue to feed that sort of full value chain with smelters and, and refineries. So I think our backgrounds, um, having worked around the world in a, a wide range is almost unique in the competitive landscape and certainly has set us up very well with now 13 of our 17 deals have really come about not through just bank led processes, but being able to actually work bilaterally with mining companies on ideas we put in front of them. We, we compete and we see everything that's out there that's competitive pretty much. 
but we do a lot of work that's generative and you know i think disproportionately focus our attention there do you think in a very meaningful way money is money the terms yeah. and conditions attached to it or or, or the difference here and you you've you know, royalty and streaming framed it slightly differently. You know, risk on is risk on for them. It, it, it it's it's just um, the, these 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 cycles and ability to get access to to cash, um, and 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 the way that banks, you know, in terms of on the debt side, feel feel about risk at any one point in the cycle versus the equity guys, how much they want to take. You guys have had a bit more flexibility. I mean, um, in terms of the way that you assess risk, and obviously with with the Team's experience and, and, and background, you can you can definitely look at risk in a different way. Do, again, do you do you feel that um, the way that you view money differently will allow royalties perhaps and, and streamers to perhaps in different parts of the cycle survive where they wouldn't have previously? I genuinely compete with equity. Um, as, as an option where perhaps where equity was the obvious route. Because you know, for me, you know, simple funding would be equity debt solution, job done. If it needs royalty and streaming, it's perhaps got problems earlier on in the, in the project, which those guys don't like. So maybe why should I as an investor? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. So I think it's not unusual, particularly in the, the, the sort of junior intermediate space, very often those CEOs are already operators who've got deep operating experience, perhaps less commercial experience. Sometimes the CFOs are also more accounting and less sort of commercial in the experience set. So a lot of the work that we do at times is actually just sharing ideas and at times um, answering questions to help people understand how to think through those trade-offs. And occasionally that will lead to a bilateral transaction. And sometimes it'll lead to a competitive process for the sector and that's okay. I mean, that's part of the remit here is to expand both understanding and the opportunity set. But I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Abiplat in South Africa, we just um, issued a virtual mind tour to help investors appreciate the sort of multi-decade endowment where we've just streamed a gold byproduct as part of that to help them pay off high cost debt. And that started off as an idea on the side of a mining conference. We'd actually already surveyed the space. It's the first time that a deal like that's been done in that region. And we really understood we were primarily competing against debt and equity as you always are. And to be able to structure something which really met their requirements from a structuring perspective, very often there's a rating agency component that we've done you know, when we were in Barrick and elsewhere. So we, we have a lot of experience in helping bridge those gaps. But even now, um, you know, we're working on a, a polymetallic situation bilaterally when I first met with um, the CEO, who's again, more of a deep mining background, you could see he was very much in the equity and debt mind frame. And after the conversation, I thought that we're not gonna talk anymore, but it turns out his advisor had worked on a deal opposite us um, just a year or so prior, suggested he take our, our proposal seriously. And in turn, this guy spoke to the CFO, someone we did a deal with, who actually said some very complimentary things, how we'd supported them even through COVID and that has led to um, a, a situation where we will complement debt and equity as part of the funding structure and helping them understand that this is really patient capital and things don't always go to script. So if there are delays and deferrals, we can be patient, whereas debt isn't always particularly patient and equity, it can be pretty painful. Right? It's, that's, that's fascinating, actually, because I, I, so I remember a period in the sort of um, 2009, 10, 10, 11, and we... Used to work for a structure finance uh, house, and mm. 
you put these bonds together and they'd be fairly vanilla and you'd put, put them up against um, equity, put them up against debt and, you know, I guess, you know, occasionally you'd, you'd win the odd pitch, right? But what we found was that by adapting and structuring, heavily structuring, the, yeah. these bonds that we could win more than we did previously. I mean, um, do you think that, do you, do you, I'm just intrigued about, you know, the competition because like I said, certain types of the cycle, equity's gonna win over you guys, debt's gonna win over you guys. And, you know, and I say now, if you can start integrating yourself as a as a, a balance between, between the two and sit, um, you know, well between the two, or e- e- equally well within the structure of finance for the company, you've you can win more of more times than than not in terms of your 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 proposals will be quite helpful. You may be able to price them differently by structuring them differently mm. because your risk is a profile is different. And I'm just wondering that 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 whole that whole market is like where it used to be competition. Can they can they genuinely sit side by side now? Um, and possibly work hand in hand. Look, in my experience, um, they can and they and they do. Um, you know, we've done some restructuring of, of senior secured debt that it really puts a company into almost like a zombie-like state. Uh, we've then had to do a lot of work on intercreditor work to restructure that debt, uh, put a stream in place that was enabling, um, and then work with equity providers. And look, we are not in the business of funding just the next milestone typically particularly if it's a large check we want to be part of a solution to get the next mine up and running or the next acquisition going so that, you know as we think about positioning there's a lot more uh, competition on the small end where guys are usually accumulating existing royalties and maybe some of them are um, you know doing more of an incubator kind of model or a generation sort of model we don't do a lot of that it's really more just with those big three or four that we tend to, you know, add, and it and it isn't as hyper competitive there, I believe, as when people look at the sector monolithically, which it isn't. Well, yeah, that, that's a bit I'd love you to demystify for me because when I speak to uh, all CEOs of royalty and streaming companies, um, it's they are highly competitive. They're always buying cheap, and they're buying well, and they know people, and it's a you know the telephone directory. Um, yeah. So it, 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 so they're they're telephone they're the black book is, is small and perfect. It's hard to work out how well people are actually buying because what happens when companies of yep. certain sizes, you get so many assets and royalties and streams in there that even the brokers can't be bothered to do the work and break it down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're buying a portfolio and work out if mm-hmm. it's if it if you are doing a good job. So what are what are your criteria? How how do you say, okay, we buy well because we follow the following set of uh, guidelines or rules for ourselves. I, I have to say like your, your, your founding premise here is actually it's so important. I was talking about it on a panel just last week because if you sit in the audience of a mining conference, everything sounds the same. It's all world-class, yep. you know, these are super deals, everything's accretive. The best. So I can understand why A, it's confusing, particularly for generalists. Um, most of them don't care about mine A versus mine B. And B, like how do you differentiate it with the rhetoric versus the substance? And I think that's where increasingly the track record of the team actually matters. And I think for us in the beginning, understandably, people would look at it and go, well, who are these Johnny come lately's? Because we, we made a strategic decision early on because it served us to do that, that we were privately funded. We were just going to be go dark. So we, we announced our first deal and then we didn't announce anything until we became public in May last year. But I think for, um, uh, you know, as people look at the sector, things like, 
because um, NAB is a very malleable thing when you start looking at analyst breakdowns. Looking at the actual cash flow yield on the invested capital uh, and the portfolio duration, and you'll see our, our, our cash flow yields are up there with Franco and Wheaton, and that's not accidental. You'll also see that. Wait, wait, what, what, is, what does up there mean? What's that? Give, give, give me some numbers. So in the order of around, around about 10% uh, of okay. cash flow. On uh, Our run rate at the moment is um, we're doing around $120 million of free cash flow um, a year. And of course, you, you'll see uh, we just announced um, our latest uh, ounce record this last year. It's consecutive. There was 33% on last year's record. And then you'll see the five and 10 year outlook that we provided which only really Frank and Wheaton have been able to provide shows further funder growth to 105. So we've just done 83.6 thousand gold equivalent ounces. You'll see that averaging 105 in the five and 10 year timeframe. And that's before we do more transactions, right? So I don't, I've never been compelled to do deals for the sake of growth because it hasn't necessarily unlocked value, but you can already profile in quite easily on a very tangible basis when more than 90% of the net asset values in operating assets. That's from 15 assets out of 78. And you can look at the history mm. of um, actual um, growth in ounces and the portfolio duration, and you can very quickly get a sense of that. Right? So that's, that's interesting. So you're multiple, okay, that's interesting multiple. Um, so just, on, just in terms of the cash growth profile, um, you mentioned it briefly there, is, is that based on reserves or resource? So the cash flow profile that I'm referring to at the moment is, is essentially just the historicals actual. If you go to our website and you look at the, um, the, the latest corporate presentation, it's something we've issued since Q3 because when you're a public uh, company uh, on well, yeah, doing an IPO with prospectus liability, the, the forward-looking info is a year. It's super restrictive. As we've come off that, you'll see, um, I think it's slide 17 on our deck out there currently, you'll see the actual ounce growth over, over time. So that translates into a 26% cumulative annual growth rate since, since 2017. Mm -hmm. That's a big growth rate. That's actual ounces. And then in turn, you'll see that five and 10 year outlook that we've provided. And so that's really underpinned primarily through reserves. And um, it doesn't, it's not contingent on a lot of stuff which is yet to be funded and, and coming out. So there's, there's you know, a lot of substance underpinning that outlook. So that's right. And then, because that's interesting, because again, when I try and, when I talk to companies about this, they're kind of a little bit evasive around it, but you're saying so that's reserves, because uh, I'm intrigued by, you know, how many projects are, you know, obviously producers now and or materially advanced. And for me, that's, mm -hmm. you know, get into production in the next couple couple of years. Um, how, how do you break your portfolio down when you're when you're sitting there across your monthly board meeting and saying, right, okay, guys, let's let's go through this. What's important to you? So part of it was um, our strategic positioning early on. So we said we saw an opportunity to really add to the ecosystem through funding, balance sheet repair, next mine builds, uh, acquisitions, and occasionally acquiring non-core assets from mining businesses and you invest through the cycle. And we said the check size sweet spot was roughly 100 to $500 million. We've obviously done smaller and we've done bigger as with North Parks. But I'd say that that competitive positioning matters. And the fact is that we wanted to focus primarily on either producing assets with really good mineral endowment and a good track record of reserve replacement. So you'll see that with Cerro Lindo. It's our first deal, 250 million. They've got as much silver in reserves now as when we did the deal over five years ago. So the reserve replacement is a beautiful thing that we've seen manifest. And in turn, we've pulled out more than 150 million of silver so far 
through that deal. And that's the thing that makes this model very, very compelling. Um, and when we funded with larger checks growth, we've typically said two years or less to cash flow. And we also said we don't want to take on permitting risk because very often that's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, if it's if it's a, a lottery ticket, it's a smaller item, usually we're not paying a lot for those. And I'll give you a good example there. You know, we did $5 million on Talon's Tamarack project, which is a, a joint venture with Rio. So that was to help them, you know, essentially secure their, their earning at that point in time. And anyone who's followed that, you know, Henry and Sean have done an amazing job in that JV of just proving up that mineral endowment and just announced the offtake arrangement, one and a half billion with Tesla. You know, they'll have that mine up and going probably before 2026. And those are the sorts of things where, you know, the returns profile and the characteristics of that and the geology that we do a lot of work on, uh, you know, we're happy to place those bets occasionally when we see them. Because it's interesting, actually, you, you, I mean, you mentioned something there, which is obviously out there in the market. market's very, very excited and, you know, sh mm. shares have done quite well. That doesn't affect your bottom line, so you, you could care less, right? What, what, mm. you're, what, you're, what you're looking for is the company's ability to actually get into production. So just coming back to that, kind of again, that profile, thanks for that breakdown. But in terms of the difference between promotional companies and mm. companies with strong fundamentals and, and, and management team, again, as an investor, it's something which I, I say to people all the time, but I think, you know, some people like to play the market and that's fine, but you guys can't afford to do that. So what what, what is the process you go through when you're evaluating? You talked about the team who, who can do it, but when you go in and do your diligence, writing these big ticket between a 150 and 500, that's going to take some time to do. And yeah. it, it is going to be in a competitive environment, typically. So how do, you, how do you ensure that you get the deal that you want? So firstly, when you're talking those larger ticket sizes, it isn't as if you've got a, a cost of thousands who are actually doing the work on those. And we know from both having sat in Barrick and elsewhere and seeing that, you know, when you've essentially got three guys that can write a $610 million check quite quickly, there's actually a bifurcation competitively um, with guys who look at the data and interpret it in one way and others. That there is actually room for us for differentials of time and interpretation of the mineral endowment and indeed the risk of execution and the potential for extension. And so I think that um, the ability with experience to apply judgment, and I've seen this in whether it's Barrick or Extrata or others, getting into businesses with great technical and operating teams and being able to actually look at capital allocation and how best to maximize free cash out of those businesses, sometimes just people focusing on the detail and the minutia can actually result in quite significantly different outcomes. Our first deal, Sarah Lindo, um, working with our team at the time, um, we know that we found things in diligence that some of the big guys had overlooked. And that happens occasionally. That can be determinative. So, you know, as time moves on, again, it's 17 deals over five years that's delivered the growth. For us, it's been very much grounded in, it's more than 90% of our net asset value, similar to the majors, which is not accidental, is grounded in producing assets. So those 15 assets, five of which are still ramping, um, really that's part of what creates that funded growth. And then we've still got 63 or so other assets that are pre-production, mostly in essentially the United States and Canada. And whenever those things, you know, those are more like longer dated, I don't include those typically in the 10-year time frame that we've we provided for looking guidance. And those are things that from time to time could actually be interesting catalysts. But that, you know, that's not really what's driving the fundamental value. So it's interesting that you, you mentioned 
you know, one, one of the silver producers, the, you know, they're in five years, you know, their their reserves are, are, are the same as they were five years ago. They are producing this organic growth component is a big big part of um, your your story. And again, is that again is that part of what you're looking for when you're looking at yeah. these larger deals? The ability to yeah, right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so North Parks is a, um, a great example again, where they've been operating for 25 years and you'll see that the golden reserves when they started, and it's not a gold mine, of course, it's a copper mine, but you'll see that beautiful steady cadence. And then you look at the forward looking reserves and the resources in the, in that mine, and you'll see very similar characteristics there. But then in addition to make this model compelling, you know, that footprint of that mine, um, that's been operating now over 25 years is about 26 square kilometers, but the exploration package around that's over a thousand square kilometers. So we negotiate hard to maintain that exposure to that future uh, exploration success. And you'll see that not just the reserve replacement component, but the potential that someone will actually go and find a new ore body. And we want our investors to participate in that. So you'll see it in North Parks. You'll very much see it in, in Cerro Lindo. Um, RB Platt and others in the portfolio. I think our our, um, our mineral reserve position represents about r roughly one percent of the overall land package our investors are exposed to. It's, and it's kind of interesting, actually. I, 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 sus I suspected, or I'd hope that you know, royalty companies and streaming companies, and I, and I do advocate people have them in the, in your investment portfolio. Um, the right ones, of course, and that it'd be a sort of like a, a steady, sort of slow. Gets gets slow quick. I think someone called it um, once to me. Um, you know, profile in terms of the share the, the the share chart, right? But you guys and and a couple of the other actually big boys kind of just fell off at the end of last year, which suggested a very strong correlation um, to what was happening in the gold equities market, not the gold price, yeah. gold yeah. equities. And that was a huge disconnect moment for me. I'm like, well, hang on a sec. Gold price is really strong. The producers are producing gold at really nice prices. Um, that shouldn't affect what was going on with you. What, what do you put that down to? And for me, primarily a strong dollar in the Fed. And you, you know, we, um, you know, we we listed in May of last year. Shortly afterwards, the Fed started uh, its messaging on tightening. You know, we saw the whole sector, particularly as you say, the gold equities come down. And you know, for us specifically, as we had. Um, you know, our low liquidity as a new issuer, uh, some sellers on that. As that got cleared out, you've seen us outperform on the way up. And, uh, you know, we've essentially, you know, returned and outperformed this, uh, the rest of the space. So I think, I think those have been key features. And I think the one thing that the streaming and royalty participants um, will benefit from in this next phase is you think about inflation is really we, you know, we, we don't suffer that the way that the, the producers do. And it's one of the benefits of the model. Yeah, no, I think in a recent article we, we called it inflation-proof investing. Um, very rare, rare thing indeed. Uh, just just on the on the money side, right? Okay, I know you've got a, a huge uh, credit facility available. You've got an accordion, and you've got some cash. What 25, 27 million of cash um, at, at the moment, and you've uh, well, I note a one and a half percent dividend, right? Mm. <laughs> Why can't you guys? Do better on the dividends front. I mean, broadly as an industry, you know, one percent, one and a half percent. Why does it yeah, not so work I, like that? I, th I think a couple of things. I think if you're ex growth, um, I can totally get that point, right? So is that the highest and best use? And bear in mind, I'm I'm a, essentially a two percent shareholder personally in this business. I like having dividends. It's part of that overall value equation. We want to pay 
ideally a progressive dividend over time. So, you know, as a new issue on IPO, we did a lot of canvassing of various investors to sort of say we're on the spectrum of no dividend to, you know, a significantly higher dividend should we be starting out. And we pitched it initially at um, really what was that one and a half percent you mentioned was, was the highest in what we saw as the peer set. And, um, you know, that appears to have been well received by, by our investors. So it's something we'll continue to revisit. We're not going to do a percentage of cash flow approach and we'll look over time. For us, ideally, we want that to be predictable and follow the sort of track record we've seen the likes of Franco do over time, which has really progressed that. Um, there's still the highest and best use of our, of our capital is in smart deals and to try and replicate what we have for our investors over the last five years. So that's trying to strike that balance uh, over time, right, with uh, capital allocation. Uh, absolutely. And I know it's a big credit facility, and I know, yeah. you know, and the accordions there was 100 million as well. Mm-hmm. You, but the the 120 million bucks of, of free cash flow, you know, as you say, the smartest use is go and do another accretive deal, yeah. right? It, make, it mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to need a lot, well, how many deals should we expect to see from you going forward? 17 in five years is great, but what's the reality going forward? Yeah, so, you know, the first thing is you'll see some management teams out there when you look at their short-term incentives actually have incentives linked to doing deals. Yeah. You won't see that with us because I do think it can drive the wrong behavior. So if for whatever set of reasons, because you've seen our growth, like I, even the projections, I don't have to chase a deal to secure the growth that we've already secured. Um, but if you look at our track record, you look at the cadence of deal-making, we're quite happy to be patient and to deploy with things that we think will continue to enhance the quality of the portfolio. And as we said before, you know, if you're a 20, $30 billion competitor, some of the big guys are, and they do a two, three, $400 million deal, it doesn't move the share price. Whereas for us, you know, it's in, we're in a scale where that thing can still make a significant difference for our investors for many years to come. So I think it's a really interesting window for us right now. So just on that, because I think that's such an important point you made. The, a lot of management teams are incentivized by de- delivering cer- certain objectives that they set out for them. They set out themselves. They, yeah. they they write the rules by which they are remunerated, and we've seen how well that goes in uh, with, with politicians in the United States. We've and we've seen it uh, in in mining in the sense where, um, you know, we, we recently interviewed a company who put out a maiden resource, which is about half the size he had been telling the the, uh, the market because it needed to be done by a certain date and it had been held back by COVID restrictions and and so forth. The company halved in value, right. but he got some great options. So it's a, it's a happy ending, right? Um, you, yeah. <laughs> you guys, you, you're a major shareholder. You're saying that for you, your incentives are linked to what? What, what, what should we be looking at and going, are, are they hitting that for themselves? But why is that good news for us? So look, I, we're going to publish the details of that in our upcoming proxy. And we're actually in the process right now working with Mercer, defining that in a way that makes sense. But I can say on a high level, the short and long-term incentives are ultimately my, my primary interest and that of my entire team, every single one of them, is really creating value in the equity. Because as I say, we have 5% of the equity. And the question at the end of the day, really, is what is it that's going to unlock additional value in our share price uh, over time? So that's always been our focus. Initially, it was, can we unlock value in excess of a cost of funding to actually generate value in the free carried interest as a private business and to have some equity ownership? We demonstrated that through generating decent returns. That's really the focus on the go forward for us as well as that equity ownership. Sean, 
appreciate your time today. Thanks for running through that. Um, I hope you come back on again and we can maybe dive down into a few rabbit warrens um, and learn a little bit more about the story. But, um, but stay in touch. Enjoyed that. Uh, likewise. And uh, actually, really interesting uh, direction that went in. I, I appreciated it. Thanks so much. And thanks for the opportunity. Take care.